traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Tonight's episode of The Twilight Zone takes place after a heist. Now we don't see the heist, but we hear the characters talking about it. Rod Serling's novelization of the story gives us a little bit more detail. It starts off like this. The tracks of the Union Pacific were reptile twins snaking their way south of the Nevada line into the vast torrid valleys of the Mojave Desert. And once a day, when the crack streamliner city of St. Louis thundered along these tracks past the needle-like volcanic crags, the distant sawtooth desolate mountains, the Dead Sea of Ash and brittle creosote brush, it was the intrusion of a strange anachronism. The screaming power of the diesel pushed aside the desert winds. It shot past the white and arid wastes of the ancient land, as if afraid of being caught by the jagged, crumbling spears of rock that surrounded the great quadrangular desert. And once, just once, the impossible happened. The steel cord that tied the train to the earth was parted. Too late, the giant wheels sent up protesting sparks and agonizing metal shrieks trying to stop that which could not be stopped, 50 tons of engine and train moving at 90 miles an hour. It thundered off the broken tracks and smashed against a sloping sand dune with an explosive roar that shattered that still desert with earth-shaking reverberation. Cars followed the engine off the tracks like nightmares piling atop nightmares until the carnage had spent itself. The city of St. Louis was a dying metal beast with 15 broken vertebrae stretched across the desert floor. So armed with a little bit more background detail, let's take a look at tonight's episode of The Twilight Zone, The Rip Van Winkle Caper. Introducing four experts in the questionable art of crime. Mr. Farwell, expert on noxious gases, former professor with a doctorate in both chemistry and physics. Mr. Irby, expert in mechanical engineering. Mr. Brooks, expert in the use of firearms and other weaponry. And Mr. DeCruz, expert in demolition and various forms of destruction. The time is now, and the place is a mountain cave in Death Valley, USA. In just a moment, these four men will utilize the services of a truck placed in Cosmoly, loaded with a hot heist, cooled off by a century of sleep, and then take a drive into the twilight zone. First broadcast on April 21st, 1961, written by Rod Serling and directed by Justice Addis. This is the middle episode of Justice Addis' trilogy of tales involving time travel. The first was The Odyssey of Flight 33. The next is No Time Like the Past. Although this time I guess you could say it's more suspended animation than time travel. In his book, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. will often document 
uh, alternate opening narrations, and I enjoy reading those out on the show, hearing what might have been, and you can usually see why they made the choice not to use it on the show. Graham says in the book that he thinks Sailing consciously started to shorten his opening narrations from this point on. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that, but I actually get the feeling that this has already happened to a degree. I remember in that first season there was a lot of really quite poetic opening narrations that aren't really there anymore. Now I'm sure it'll be back in some episodes, but maybe not in such abundance. And this time Rod Serling's original opening narration went like this. Introducing four experts in the questionable art of crime. Mr. Farwell, expert on noxious gases, former professor with a doctorate in both chemistry and physics. Mr. Airby, expert in mechanical engineering. Mr. Brooks, expert in the use of firearms and other weaponry. Mr. De Cruz, expert in demolition and various forms of destruction. The time is now and the place is a mountain cave in Death Valley, USA, 113 miles from a railroad track where at the moment a train has been derailed and a baggage car containing $1 million in gold bullion en route to Fort Knox, Kentucky has been removed and is in the process of being deposited here. So far so normal, but here comes the bizarre part, because a million dollars in stolen gold bullion will be a rather warm item to dispense with at this stage of the game. Mr. Farwell and his associates now enter the second phase of their master plan. They destroy their vehicles, all but one, a large truck covered with cosmoline that can remain on blocks indefinitely and made to run when convenient. And like the truck, Mr. Farwell and companions plan to do the same thing to themselves. They will place themselves in a state of suspended animation until such time as in the vernacular of the trade, the heat's off. In this case, apropos of the size of the hall, said period being 100 years from today's date, at which point they will wake up and as Mr. Farwell says, walk the earth as extremely rich men. Bizarre indeed, but what happens to them 100 years hence, or as of the moment they awake, is even more bizarre. They think that outside of this cave is Death Valley. It is of course, but it's also the Twilight Zone. I think we can see why that opening narration had to be trimmed down. He does try and put a lot of exposition in there. And I think in the end that exposition was moved into the episode itself because... We have our four crooks who have stolen all this gold from the train. And when they're unloading the stolen gold into the cave, then we get this big exposition dump. It is one thing, gentlemen, to stop a train on its way from Fort Knox to Los Angeles and steal its cargo. It's another thing to remain free to spend it. And spend it we shall. Yeah, but when? Don't you know, Mr. Cruz? I would have thought that this aspect of the plan would be particularly clear in your mind. Rip Van Winkle. That's what we are. Four Rip Van Winkles. I'm not sure. What are you not sure of, Mr. Cruz? Just lying down in one of these... these glass caskets and getting put to sleep. I like to know what I'm doing. 
You know what you're doing. I've explained it very precisely to you. All four of us will be placed in a state of suspended animation. And when we wake up, that's when we'll take our gold and enjoy it. The dialogue isn't bad per se, but I think it does suffer a little from that thing of people explaining things to other people. And these other people already know what that person is telling them because they were there. In a 24-minute episode, I guess we can forgive a little clumsy exposition. It's interesting to note that in the novelization, Sailing describes the, the robberies being a bit more violent, the train coming up off the tracks and so on. He does mention the, the gas, but he doesn't mention that they just walked on while people are snoring. Instead, it goes like this. Two hours earlier, these four men, in an incredible blending of talent, timing and technique, had executed a heist unlike anything ever performed in the annals of crime. De Cruz had planted the five one-pound blocks of TNT that had blown up the tracks and sent the train to its destruction. Airby had almost single-handedly put the two vehicles together from the parts of a dozen others without parentage, untraceable. Brooks had developed the grenades and Farwell had come up with the sleeping gas and in precisely 13 minutes every occupant of the train had been asleep, the two engineers forever. Then the four men had moved quickly and quietly into one of the cars to remove the rotary lock pouches carrying the bullion. Again, de Cruz had utilised his talents to blow the locks apart and the bullion had been transferred to the van. It was part of their natures that none of them was concerned with the two dead engineers or the twenty odd badly wounded human beings they'd left behind. Expediency was the one gospel that they all recognised and paid homage to. So our four crooks, De Cruz, Farwell, Brooks and Airby, enter their suspended animation chambers. It's funny, we all have our own idealised version of what a Twilight Zone episode is in our heads. And the way I think of them is that things happen to someone more in the way of Christian Horn last time around, where that unexpected thing comes out of nowhere. We don't necessarily know why it happens, but we accept that it does because it's the Twilight Zone. When there's an actual device involved, it does kind of throw me slightly. Like the time machine and execution, or the suspended animation chambers. In these episodes, the, the strangeness, the fantastical element is man-made, not Twilight Zone made. So, this episode reminds me more of something like the Dimension X radio show than uh, a kind of idealised Twilight Zone, if you like. Now that's not a bad thing, it's not a criticism, it's just an observation really, because of course they they had to mix things up. It didn't work. Then we don't have any beards. And our nails didn't grow. Well, Mr. Farwell, with a big brain and all the answers, why didn't it work? It must have worked. It was foolproof. All the body functions stopped. There wouldn't be any growth of beard or nails or anything else. I tell you, it worked. When everybody wakes up, they're not sure whether the suspended animation had worked, but it's the death of one of their party that convinces them 
that it has. Abby's chamber was cracked by a falling rock while he was sleeping, and now he's nothing more than a skeleton. I really like this little detail very much, using the device itself to tell them that time has passed, but it's almost reminiscent of what would come later from Rod Serling in my favourite Twilight Zone movie, Planet of the Apes, where one of the crew, a female named Stuart, suffers the same fate as Airby on the spaceship at the beginning of the film. Her chamber becomes cracked and she dies. The three remaining crooks, Farwell, DeCruz and Brooks, go about getting ready to drive out with their truck full of gold. And we mentioned in the last show that this is filmed in the same California location as 100 yards over the rim. But that's not the only thing that's the same. The larger truck that we see earlier on in the episode is actually the same one that sped past Chris Horn when he first arrived in the future. If it wasn't for the episode telling us that this was in a different location, you could actually say that maybe it was these guys last time round driving past Christian Horn after doing the heist. Now this tends to be one of those sailing stories where he's not so much pushing a message across about something like, you know, the walking distances or the eye of the beholders where the characters have very poetic dialogue. Of course there's themes, there's messages in there, but it's a bit more straight down the line. Our crooks are pretty unsophisticated guys. Except for Farwell, the actual brains of the operation, who has a little bit more to him. And he does actually take a moment to reflect on what it means, jumping forward a hundred years in time. Why is it, Mr. De Cruz, that greedy men are the most dreamless, the least imaginative, the stupidest? Now you listen to me, Farwell. For the first time in the history of men, we have taken a century and put it in our hip pocket. We've taken a lease on life and outlived our stay. We've had our cake, but we're still going to eat it. It's quite an adventure out there, Mr. De Cruz. Though you're a little insensitive to it, that's quite an adventure. It's a world we've never seen before. A brand new, exciting world that we are going to walk through. Very quickly, one of the main themes of this episode starts to play itself out. Is there any honour amongst thieves? Can people who have chosen a dishonest profession have any trust amongst themselves? Once the goal is achieved, the cooperation and teamwork is then overtaken by greed. It's interesting because Farwell does stick to his part of the bargain. We learn that he's an expert in the use of gases and he could have quite easily rigged up some sort of system where his chamber was filled with sleeping gas and the others were all poisoned. Also early on when he realises that Airby is still in his chamber, he does actually show concern. He quickly goes back into the cave to try and wake him up. So this arrangement between all of these crooks quickly deteriorates when De Cruz drives their van at Brooks, killing him and then the brakes on the truck fail, and it ends up going over the cliff. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. says, Dave Armstrong, who was a stunt double for a number of Twilight Zone episodes, made his debut on the series as a double for the Cruz. Robert L. McCord, also known as Bob McCord, who played the role of the sheriff pursuing Chris Horn in the previous episode, 
was the stunt double for the character of Brooks. James Turley was paid the usual scale of 27.53 to act as a stand-in for this episode, along with stand-in regular Bob McCord, and found his fee upped to a flat $50 for what Buckhouse referred to on paperwork as a hazardous assignment. Turley was the man who grabbed the wheel during the abandoned truck sequence. So as stunts go, it's a bit more fast-paced, a bit more action-y than your average Twilight Zone, and I think it's a pretty exciting moment. Where it does fall down for me though slightly is that after De Cruz hits Brooks with the van, we see his foot on the gas pedal and then it moves to the brake. It goes down onto the brake pedal, then it cuts to De Cruz jumping out of the van. I think it needed another beat in there to show that De Cruz was actually trying to stop the van, like frantically pressing down on the brake pedal a couple more times. As it actually plays out, it seems more to me that he puts his foot on the brake to slow the van enough for him to jump out. That's how it plays out to me because De Cruz doesn't seem that put out by losing the van. He even says, we'll do it my way from now on by putting the golden knapsacks and hitting the road. So it really kind of soured what came after because it seemed that De Cruz's plan was to purposely ditch the truck, which considering they're in the middle of the desert would have been ridiculous. It's only afterwards when I was reading up on it that I read the novelization and I realized he didn't actually ditch the truck on purpose. Now in the book it plays out like this. De Cruz's eyes remain set, focused directly in front of him. Staring through the windshield, he saw Brooks make a frantic sideways leap, but too late. He heard the thump of metal hitting, jarring, tearing, and with it the scream of the mangled man. He let the car surge forward, keeping his foot on the accelerator. Then he glanced over his shoulder to see Brooks' body face down in the sand a hundred feet behind him. He took his foot off the accelerator and put it on the brake. Nothing happened. De Cruz's throat constricted as he realized the far ledge was only a few yards ahead of him. Again, he slammed on the brake and reached desperately, frantically, for the emergency. Too late, the car was doomed, and it was during the few seconds before it plunged over the far ledge that De Cruz managed to open the door and fling himself out. The impact knocked the breath from him, and he felt sand, harsh and gritty in his mouth, and at the same time, he heard the sound of the car smashing hundreds of feet below against the rocks. Mr. Brooks had a very bad accident. I keep underestimating you, Mr. De Cruz. Yeah, well, we'll do it my way now. We'll pack as much as we can, put him in two knapsacks and hit the road. I can't think of any other alternative at the moment. Now, as an aside, the background music in this episode is actually recycled music from Bernard Herrmann. It was originally used in a play called The Moat Farm Murders in the 1930s, which was part of Orson Welles' Mercury Theatre programme. It was then recycled in many television shows since. Now, I won't go too much into the actual show itself because... Apart from the music, there's really nothing else to link them. But I'll just play a short clip just to show how it was used, and also to show that while Orson Welles had many talents, his English accent wasn't really one of them. 
When I'd taken the horse out, I thought she'd go in the house. But instead of that, she made some remark about it being a beautiful moonlight night. I pushed the trap into the coach house by this time, so I stepped up to the side of the trap, reached down the revolver, and as Miss Holland stood just near the door, looking at the moon, I shot her. She dropped just like a log. And then I pulled her into the coach house. Have I lived to be a thousand years old? I shall never forget the feeling as I caught hold of both her hands and drew her along until I got her into the coach house. All kinds of things came into my mind and my heart seemed almost to stand still as I put my hand inside her dress to feel if her heart was beating. So now we're 14 minutes into the show and we're left with De Cruz and Farwell. So we'll pause for a moment just to spend some time with the cast. I won't go too much into their bios, but I just will point out some things of interest and we'll go in the order that they meet their demise in the episode. The first one to go is Erby, and he's the character who really only turns up to die. And he was played by John Mitchum, who is the brother of the Hollywood legend Robert Mitchum. Unlike Robert, John was a bit more of a background character actor with smaller roles like his recurring character, DiGiorgio, who was in three of the Dirty Harry movies. And we'll see John Mitchum again in The Twilight Zone, Mr. Garrity and The Graves. Next to die is Brooks, who was played by Lou Gallo, and Gallo was also a successful TV producer. Not much really sticks out to me in terms of his acting credits. He was one of our hard-working actors of the day as well. But he did three Twilight Zones. He did this, The Hitchhiker, and on Thursday, We Leave for Home. Next to die was De Cruz, who was played by Simon Oakland. He had a very distinctive look about him, very at home in the role of the tough guys, the heavies. And he was in everything. He was very prolific. And he had some notable movie credits too, things like West Side Story, the Steve McQueen movie Bullet, and that classic horror movie Psycho. And he did another Twilight Zone too, The Thirty Fathom Grave. And finally, Farwell is played by a Hungarian actor called Oscar Beregi Jr. And he was born in 1918, but he left Hungary in 1939 for America. He couldn't speak much English, but worked as a salesman while he learned the language. Now, interestingly, he didn't get his first American acting credit until 1959, so would have been about 40 when his US acting career actually started. Now, he too is a three-time Twilight Zone player. Apart from this, he was also in Mute, but probably most famously Death's Head Revisited. The last nine minutes of the episode are really spent with these two characters, De Cruz and Farwell, in this back and forth exchange between them. They set out on the road with 28 miles to the next town ahead of them and they're both carrying heavy sacks of gold on their back. Farwell is clearly less fit and healthy than De Cruz and the journey starts to wear him out. 
quite quickly. Hold it, the cruise. Hold it. I've, I've got to rest. How are we doing, Farwell? The map said. The map said 28 miles to the next town. At this rate, we won't reach it till tomorrow afternoon sometime. At this rate, you'll never reach it. There hasn't been a car. Not a single car. What if... What if what? What if there were a war? What if they dropped a bomb? What if this highway stretched to... Stretched to what? Stretched to nothing, Mr. De Cruz. Stretched to nothing at all. This is probably the most interesting aspect of the show for me. What are they going to find in this world? You know, the appearance of planes in the air shows that there are still people around, but in what form will they be peaceful? Will there have been a war? Just because people survived, it doesn't mean the world is going to be the same place. Will society have advanced in terms of technology? Will the planet be populated by apes? I like that they don't really know what they're walking into. Farwell muses about what if there was a war and people were wiped out and their gold was worthless and how ironic that would be. The thing is, he doesn't realise that he's closer to the truth than he thinks, but for different reasons. Farwell has dropped his canteen somewhere on the journey, which puts De Cruz in a position of power because now he's the only one with water, so he starts to charge Farwell for sips of water in exchange for gold. We're now treated to this extended montage of Farwell getting weaker and weaker, and De Cruz taking on more and more gold. Now bear in mind that I haven't seen some of these episodes for years because I don't re-watch them until I cover them on the show. So I couldn't remember how this one ended up. I thought that perhaps the ironic twist would be that the journey would get harder and harder for De Cruz because he ended up carrying all the gold and easier for Farwell because his gold was getting lighter and lighter and maybe De Cruz would end up exhausted and dying because of his greed. But that wasn't the case, but it might have been an interesting way to go. What's the matter? You pooped already? You had a good night's sleep? We've only been on the road for a couple of hours. Stop, must stop. I must have water, the cruise. Must have water. Uh, well, all right, Farwell. I got about a quarter of a canteen left. Please, the cruise. Please, the cruise. Mr. Farwell, the rate of exchange has gone up a little bit today. It's two bars of gold for one swallow. In his weakened state, Farwell ends up killing De Cruz, but it's too late. He's too far gone, and eventually that catches up with him. As he lays in the road dying, a futuristic car pulls up alongside him. This is gold here. You gotta have it. You gotta have it. Drive me to town, if you give me water. Gold. It's real gold. You can have it. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. 
is it, George? What's the matter with him? Some old tramp. That's what he was. He's dead. What's that? Gold. That's what he said he was. He wanted to give it to me in exchange for a lift into town. Gold? Now, what in the world would he be doing with this gold? I don't know. He's probably off his rocker. Anybody walking on the desert this time of day would be off his rocker. Can you imagine that? He offered this to me as if it was really worth something. So there's our ironic twist. The actors who play the couple in the car were Wallace Rooney and Shirley O'Hara, who also had multiple Twilight Zone credits to their name. So the whole cast of this episode is made up of Twilight Zone regulars, maybe the only one in the history of the show will look out for it. And just to cap it all off, their futuristic car is adapted from a prop from Forbidden Planet. As Twilight Zones go, I think this one is, it's okay. You know, I get the feeling that a lot of it was engineered around this twist. Imagine a bunch of crooks who steal a ton of gold, sleep for a hundred years, and wake up to a time that gold is worthless. So where does some stories feel like they naturally flow to a twist ending, some end up feeling a little bit on the nose, like the twist came first and the story was built around it. I think there are probably a lot of Twilight Zones that would actually conceive that way, but it's down to the writing and the production itself to flesh the whole thing out a bit more. I just feel like it is just that, almost a bit too on the nose, when the guy picks up the gold bar at the end and is like, he just offered me this gold like it was worth something, you know? It's it's almost like when a character says the title of a film or something in it and you just kind of wince a little bit. Strangely, it just feels like that for me. On the other hand, though, you could say that the story does quite a decent job of misdirecting you from the twist with this interplay between Farwell, Andy Cruz. You know, that's quite separate from the end, and so it does keep you occupied. Mark Zickery's Twilight Zone companion entry on this one is literally just one paragraph, and in it he says, Two performances raised the Rip Van Winkle caper above the mundane. Simon Oakland as a sadistic and greedy thug, and Oscar Beregi as the brains of the operation. Together, the two generate a lot of electricity. This episode also adds another fine, ironic ending to the catalogue of the Twilight Zone. I wouldn't go so far as to say electricity, but I do think these two actors do a really nice job, you know, and I enjoy seeing them working together, this, this kind of thing they've got going on between them, this, uh, this power play. And that sequence is probably the highlight of the episode, but is it enough to raise it above the average? Not for me. And I do think there is a bit of a missed opportunity for the ending to have that much more impact too. In an episode that is cast completely with bad guys, De Cruz seems to be the baddest of the bad guys. He kills Brooks with the car. He takes advantage of Farwell being older and more unfit than him and takes all of his gold. Now imagine if Farwell had died in the desert and De Cruz was left with all this gold. Then the car stops and De Cruz says, give me a ride into town and I'll give you a gold bar. Then the driver says something like, well, I'll, I'll give you a ride, but why would I want a gold bar? It's worthless. Then De Cruz would have been hit with it that everything that he'd done 
was for nothing. I suppose then maybe it would have been a little too similar to I shot an arrow into the air. As it is, I think the ironic twist is pretty good, you know, maybe a little on the nose, and I do kind of like that they all died for nothing. But they all died without knowing that, and I think ironic twists are that much more powerful when they're accompanied by realisation and that cosmic twilight zone justice smacks them in the face. So it's a middle of the road twilight zone for me that falls short in a few places, but is still an enjoyable enough episode. And as that futuristic car heads off down the road, there our story ends. At least in the television version anyway, in the novelization, sailing pads it out just that little bit more. Fifteen minutes later, a police helicopter arrived, hovered over the scene, and landed. Two uniformed men walked over to the body of Farwell, gently placing her on a stretcher, and carried it over to the aircraft. The officer in charge noted down on a small pad the particulars. Unidentified man, age approximately 60, death from overexposure and exhaustion, three score lines on a policeman's pad, and it compromised the obituary for one Mr. Farwell, a doctor of chemistry and physics. Weeks later, they found a cruiser's body, almost decomposed, and not long after, the body of Brooks and the skeleton of Airby. All four men were minor mysteries, and their bodies were consigned to the earth, without mourning, without identity. The gold was left where it lay, stretched across the desert, and piled up in the back seat of a disintegrating ancient car. It soon became embedded in the landscape, joined the sage, saltbrush, palewood, and the imperishable cacti. Like Farewell, Airby, Brooks and De Cruz, it had no value. No value at all. The last of four Rip Van Winkles who all died precisely the way they lived, chasing an idol across the sand, to wind up bleached dry in the hot sun as so much desert flotsam, worthless as the gold bullion they built a shrine to. Tonight's lesson in the Twilight Zone. Let's read some listener emails in submitted for your approval. I've often said on the Twilight Zone podcast that if someone emails me and they uh, send a nice message like, thanks for the show, really enjoy it, then I just tend to reply to those emails and don't put them on the show. Uh, but if someone's talking about some kind of Twilight Zone experience or giving comments on the episodes themselves, then that's the kind of feedback that I'll I'll usually read. But this time round, it's uh, it's a little bit different, and I'm going to read these ones for for various reasons that that I'll mention throughout. This first one is from Tack, and he says, "Dear Tom, I've been listening along with the Twilight Zone podcast since 2012." when my long commute to work included a late night trolley ride that required me to be awake enough to catch my stop and ever since then I've been a slow but consistent listener. You see, that, that's why I wanted to read it because I love stuff like that, you know, hearing where people uh, listen to the show and especially if it's late at night because 
that's kind of my whole thing, how I designed the show and what I wanted it to be. Kind of like late night radio, you know. So thanks for that, Tack. I appreciate it. And he goes on to say, The Twilight Zone had a big impact on me at an early age, even though I'd only seen a few episodes. I grew up in the 90s and 2000s, but I watched far more older films and shows thanks to my father. I would see only a couple of episodes on TV during New Year's, and not even every New Year. They were so captivating and with a dreamlike, ethereal undertone. Now that I'm older and have access, I want to watch them, but I don't want to lose the thrill of a new episode by binge-watching them all at once. To me, it's like a fine wine that you consume patiently and thoroughly. Not only that, I have to find myself in the right mood and the right time of night. That's what makes your podcast so great. It allows me to slowly watch each episode, reflect on it, and appreciate its thematic and historic significance. And the style which you produce them perfectly emulates that dreamlike ethereal mood. I've said as much in my iTunes review. This is the ultimate TZ podcast and a perfect companion piece for the show. Thank you so much for your hard work. Sincerely from the stateside, Tack. Well, that's great, Tack. Thank you. And, um, you know, that's why I wanted to read it. Like I mentioned, it, it kind of taps in into what I really wanted the show to be. So the fact that, that you've kind of uh, picked up on it on that level kind of means a lot to me, so thank you. Now, I've had an email from Matt, Matt Larkin, and he says, I would like to first send a big thank you for the excellent podcast. I've always adored The Twilight Zone, and this has reinvigorated my love and interest for the entire sci-fi fantasy genre. I was under the false impression that TZ stood alone in its quality of storytelling and style, However, as you frequently pointed to the programs Dimension X and X-1, that most certainly isn't the case. I've listened to a few of those episodes such as Mars is Heaven and was blown away by how good they were. I was curious as to what episodes are your favourites or that you might recommend to someone who has just started listening. Thank you again and keep up the incredible work you're doing. Matt from Peaksville, Ohio. Well, thank you, Matt. And the fact that you started listening... Uh, to Dim Dimension X and X-1 is, uh, that's great. You know, I've mentioned many times that I love those shows. When I discovered them, I'd not heard about them before, and I discovered them, and I thought it was uh, people in the modern age kind of doing, uh, you know, a throwback show, doing it in the style of a 50s show, because they were just that good. As for favourites, I I can't really say, you know, it's been a couple of years since I've listened to them now, but, you know, you sending me this has prompted me to, to maybe, I think it's time I give them a listen again. But the thing is, if you've got them all, I would say listen to them all, listen to them in order if you can. Early on, they do repeat some of the shows, strangely, but that's just how they, they played in those days. Um, but I would say listen to them all, Dimension X and X-1 are absolutely fantastic so thanks for writing in i also had an email from jeff rosenfeld now i'm not gonna read it out because it's uh, it's kind of a personal one i suppose in a lot of ways but jeff you know sent me an email to say thank you and it was a very quite um quite a touching email that you know he said that the podcast has kind of helped him through a particular thing in his life so i just wanted to say on the show especially um you know thank you jeff um i hope things are going well for you now and i hope that 
you know, you're doing well. And, and the fact that you wrote me in this way um, was really quite touching. So thank you. I appreciate that. Now, if you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then you can email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com. I will uh, accept emails or MP3 feedback, and I'll put it on the show if you do do that. So next time around, we're looking at the episode The Silence. If you want to get your thoughts in about that, then send them over. We're fast approaching the end of season two. I think we might have about five episodes left or something. Who'd have thought we'd ever get there? And I want to say thank you to a couple of people because last time I put the call out in the US, I I had, uh, I think maybe about 87 iTunes reviews. Um, I thought it'd be really cool to get to 100. I, I think there are more people who have just kind of clicked the stars and that's great too, you know, but actual written iTunes reviews, I really would have liked to get to 100. So a couple of people have answered the call. Jennifer215 and Jesse Coway away i'm not sure how you say that i do apologize but they answered the call and they've both put itunes reviews on their state side so i appreciate that so i think there's about 10 or 11 to go until i get to 100 so if you do enjoy the show and you could take a minute to just write a quick review on the us itunes then i really would appreciate it because it helps keep the podcast up there And speaking of podcasts, you know, I've said in the past, there's a lot of Twilight Zone podcasts around these days, and uh, a couple of them very graciously um, asked me to take part in in one way or another recently. So I want to thank Craig Beam on his show, Between Light and Shadow. I had a kind of cameo appearance on there recently, and also Brandon had a show called Submitted for Your Approval had me on recently i think that show should be out any day now so thanks guys i appreciate it and you know um it's cool to to kind of spread that that twilight zone love about so thank you guys so the next episode is the silence and i will speak to you then